Hello all and welcome to another episode of IT Origins. We usually don't have episodes so much as we have articles, but if this is the first time you're experiencing this, I don't know if that's even the right word, this is a series from Gestalt IT where we interview IT luminaries, professionals, executives, uh, engineers, any and all takers really in the world of IT and find out how they got started in this very particular industry. Today we have the fine fortune to talk to Matt Lieb. He's, the te- he's a technical sales executive. He's a uh, frequent Tech Field Day delegate. That's kind of how I've gotten to know him. Uh, a, I've always found him to be a really engaging uh, guy to talk to, so I thought he'd be perfect for this. So Matt, welcome to IT Origins. Thank you, Richard. Uh, happy to be here. All right, so let's get it started. Uh, we'll ask the kind of the titular question, as it were. I don't. It's not eponymous, but uh, so what? How exactly did you get into IT? What is your IT origin story? How long have you been in the field? And uh, yeah, what was your, kind of your pathway into uh, into IT? Uh, it was um, directly out of college. Uh, I had the very um, focused uh, education where I was an English major. Um, I did have a, a Spanish and a comp sign minor uh, at the University of Iowa. And, uh, of course, with all that focus, I found myself in need of work upon graduation. Um, so my first job actually straight out of college was managing the computer department at a radio shack. I, I suspect you'll find that there are not just a few of us who've had some time with Tandy Corporation in the past. I was going to say, yeah, what, what year would that have been? I uh, graduated in 86. Oh, wow. Okay, so prime radio 30, shack days. 31 years in the industry. Did, uh, did you happen to watch um, the second season of Stranger Things, Matt? <laughs> I did, yes. I did, I, it was, yeah. did the radio it, shack hold true in that instance? It's funny you should say that because, in, uh, you know, if I go back in time and try to remember, not only did it hold true, but it held true to the time frame because uh, Tandy had many different um, iterations of their store layout uh, for merchandising and product lines, et cetera. And, yeah, I saw in, in, um, in Stranger Things, I saw a TRS-80. I saw a color computer, and I think I even saw a Tandy 1000, which was their first um, 8086 clone. Ran at a really screaming 4.77 megahertz. Wow. Oh, I didn't know they made them that fast. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was not an 8088, mind you. It was an 8086. <laughs> that's, wow, that's, that's like six more or something like that. <laughs> or less. Or less, yeah. <laughs> math is, is very hard. <laughs> So a lot of a lot of tape drives back then, right? Like cassette tape drives. Uh yeah, yeah. The the first PC, actual Intel based PC I ever had, um, had a five and a quarter inch floppy disk and no hard drive. <laughs> Different days, definitely. Uh, and then, I, like, uh, how did it progress from there? I mean, was was the was the work uh, engaging enough that you wanted to keep with it, or was it you know, hey, this is what I'm educated in, this is what I'm going to do? I, I'm I'm curious how it progressed so, from there. Uh, you know, it was it was more a practical decision. Um, you know, I liked the industry. Um, I, I first started doing things like swapping out discs and uh, and replacing video cards and things like that. The old the old CGA video cards. Um, 
And, uh, you know, from a mechanical perspective, it was a lot of fun. It was puzzle doing. Uh, I, um, my father was, a uh, well, he drew for a career, uh, but he drew furniture. He was in a, uh, a de- degree in architectural and industrial design. Uh, and I found that the mechanics involved in the world of, you know, constructing PCs and, and swapping parts, et cetera, was really appealing to me. Um, and, and it was a combination at the time of sort of trying to use my mind a little bit, but also trying to communicate to my customers why what they were doing was not, uh, accomplishing what they were hoping to accomplish. And, uh, and, and all of that. Yeah. I found it really appealing. And, and my first enterprise job was with, um, with budget rent a car where I was part of this newly developed local area networking team. And on that team I did, um, you know, I pretty much did, uh, everything from Lantastic to Banyan Vines to Microsoft land manager. And my first certification I garnered when I was at budget, uh, which was downtown Chicago, uh, at, Netware version 311. Oh, I'm sorry, 211. Forgive me. Yeah, wow. That's, it, it's funny. Banyan Vine seems to come up just about uh, everyone. Every IT pro of a certain age seems to uh, have that uh, deep, in their, deep in their past. Well, it was a brilliant technology. It was true Ethernet, and they, their uh, interconnect protocol was TCP IP, uh, where, and, and that was a big selling point, where Novell... You used an IPX protocol, which nobody else uses, although a lot of people who grew up gaming in my uh, time frame did a lot of local area IPX stuff for their MMO games. And forgive me, I know very, very little about about these role-playing games and these uh, first-person shooters and things like that, but <clears throat> I know it was a very leveraged protocol. So in, in with, with that as your background, so would you say, I mean, kind of getting into that is a little bit more of a, a networking background, but I know you more as a as a storage person. Is oh. is that a misnomer, Matt? Uh, well, I mean, nobody really started out in storage back <laughs> then. We, you know, I sold a, my first um, hard drive that I ever sold was a dual uh, box, dual five gig hard drive um, assembly and in each one of those drives was five and a quarter inch wide but roughly five inches high uh, and it was leveraging old style Winchester technology and it was kind of pricey but um, you know there were no sands back then it was it was very different technology but certainly throughout my career I've, I've added storage and virtualization. Uh, I, I think my first outside of true networking technology um, arena was probably Citrix, where I, I became a, a CNA on, uh, on WinFrame, which was the precursor to MetaFrame, which still no longer exists. But a lot of the underpinnings of MetaFrame are, are still in Zen today. So kind of with that transition you know kind of saying you know there there was no you, you, there were no storage guys uh, uh proper back then what has been the biggest change in it since you started your career oh uh, well 
I mean, there are sea changes every you know number of years. Obviously, um, today leveraging what's inside your data center, uh, as well as some cloud asset, uh, is is probably the biggest specific change. Um, and I do a lot of cloud architectures and orchestrations, and uh, and and today hybrid cloud is is really I think the biggest part of the equation. But um, you know the ability to 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 build these storage infrastructures, the ability to uh, to build uh, local area networks that span the globe, uh, and then expand out into these cloud architectures. Uh, are things that have truly transformed the enterprise, in my opinion. Is, uh, you know, from your perspective, Matt, you know, you're on the ground. I'm seeing this more from a media perspective, so I, I would just love your opinion on this. For hybrid cloud, you know, we've that's been the, the buzzword of buzzwords just about for the last, I don't know, two years, something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. is, is this, in your opinion, is hybrid cloud a... Is the popularity of it temporary in that we, we, we were all promised that the cloud was going to, you know, shoot rainbows and solve all of our problems. And then we realized that it's expensive and that there's, there's, all sort, there's all sorts of problems moving workloads to it directly. So hybrid cloud is a way to, you know, in, ensure you can control costs, you can control data security, all that stuff. Is that temporary as we kind of realize uh, that we, you know, as we slowly realize that moving to the cloud is much more problematic than we were originally promised? Or is is this the way IT is going to go uh, for the foreseeable future? Well, you know, that's a really good question. And I think that um, I think that anybody that builds an architecture without planning it out, without, uh, like I always say, planning for failure, uh, is, is doomed to some level of, of uh, unforeseen, uh, you know, destruction. Um, and I, I also don't believe necessarily that the cloud is the right location for your application or your data in every case. It's certainly not the least expensive. And anybody that enters into a, uh, you know, a, I'm just going to put this stuff up there in AWS uh, without really figuring out what the ramifications might be for doing so. Uh, may find themselves pulling that data back in, pulling that application back in. Um, one of the technologies that I try to promote with my customers is that of an evaluation. At each application level or um, on an as-needed basis of where is truly the best location for your application to reside. Um, and there's a tool that I tend to leverage for that that, that I think is, is very beneficial. What people don't realize is, uh, and, and we've discussed it before, uh, is you know if you decide you want to move that massive database back down off of AWS, the data egress charges are, are outrageous. Um, and architecting that application such that maybe if you do decide at some point in the future to, to bring that data back in-house, that doing so um, logically uh, architecting your application at the outset uh, so that possibility doesn't cost you an arm and a leg over the span of time and time frame, certainly the amount of time that it takes to to extract your data from those sites, 
uh, as well as just shutting down the particular service for that particular slew of application, uh, either hosts or multi-tiered uh, servers or, or what have you, um, doesn't come back and, and haunt you. Uh, so, you know, start out with, a, with an approach that says, if this doesn't work for me or uh, even better, do your full-on evaluation ahead of time. However, that being said, and, and more to answer your question, I would say that architecting uh, intelligently can very regularly, very often include some sort of hybrid architecture. I don't think it's going away. I, I, I do think that those companies that, that place all their eggs in the, in the pure um, non-hybrid cloud environment could be buying some trouble. But hybrid, some combination of a, a data center with a, a peerage uh, either at the public cloud providers or, or even some of, the, uh, some of the more hybrid-friendly um, peer cloud environments, uh, it's here to stay. All right. You know? Yeah, look no, at that, that makes total sense. Um, I, it, as you were talking about that, I began thinking that the term elastic hybrid cloud came into my mind, and I'm going to need uh -huh. to copyright that before anyone else <laughs> puts that out there. I'm going to start selling that to companies as a buzzword. Uh, I might steal it, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Matt, current worst trend in IT. I, I suspect I may know what one of them is, but what is the, in your mind, absolute worst or worst trends in IT? Well, you know, I, I'm a. I think it's an easy answer, actually. I think the the biggest problem in IT today, um, you know, it all stems from that um, in-flight magazine decision making. Um, you read a little bit of architecture. Uh, you you know, you take a look at a magic quadrant, and you make your decisions based on what somebody says you should be doing, without truly analyzing what's most appropriate for your for your environment uh, and, and not seeking out assistance from somebody who who might have a broad ecosystem of, of products under their belt. Um, so it's it's about architecture, I think, is, is the biggest problem. You know, if if you leverage the right technology at the right time with an eye towards the future for whatever your particular business need might be um, or might have grown to, uh, I, I would say you're doing your, your company a big favor. Um, you know, one of the things that I have benefited from is, is all the learning, and, and not to, uh, to blow some smoke here, but all the learning that I've done at, um, you know, as a tech field day delegate all the wonderful storage products and orchestration products, and even some of the standard x86 road mapping that I've seen um, and I've learned from <clears throat> through the last few years, I think has really benefited me in bringing a, a better voice to, to my customers at my company. Um, and, and it gives them the benefit of my experiences. You know, I, I spent a lot of time on the inside of, of engineering and, and IT sort of related fields. I, I ran the VMware environment, for example, for years at Zurich Insurance. 
And Zurich, at, at the time that I took over that environment, was one of the largest VMware uh, environments in the world. In fact, I think we were the first ELA that VMware ever sold. And um, with that, I had the opportunity to do things in that environment that I would never have been able to do before. Um, you know, most people struggle because just building uh, a new ESX host and adding it to your cluster, uh, most companies at that time had to buy more VMware licensing. Um, and, you know, ESX, let's face it, it may be the, the benchmark for server virtualization, but it's certainly not the least expensive approach. There's a reason it's more expensive, I think, um, and I tend to be a little biased on this. Uh, having worked there, um, it's it's really the most robust stream of products in that in that space. Uh, no disparagement to to Citrix or or even Microsoft Hyper V, uh, or or for that matter the Azure Stack platform, which seems to be growing quite heavily. Um, but it really does more on VMware's side. So it's it's almost like today, when I started in the industry, the 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 buzzword was you can't be fired for buying IBM. Well, today there's a couple of other players in that space, and I, I don't know that you can necessarily be fired for expanding your VMware infrastructure or, for that matter, buying one of the, the big players in storage. You can't fault for example, EMC or, or NetApp for having rock solid products. You can find that there are alternatives that might be better suited for your particular needs. And, and again, relying just on what the architecture says uh, is, is probably, I think, the biggest fault. Yeah, it's that looking for an easy answer. I mean, that's, you know, part of the reason, you know, back in the day, like you said, you can't get fired for buying IBM because that was the, you know, that was the easy answer. And it kind of gets back to your point about hybrid cloud in terms of, uh, you know, having to do that evaluation, not just for, you know, whether you can move your application to the cloud or something like that, but in terms of knowing what's on the market and what, what it means not just to be, you know, in the innovators quadrant or, you know, the, you know, the reliable whatever quadrant that yeah. you're in. Uh, it's more of what, you know, what that, how it serves your business and, and, and your workloads and that kind of stuff. So it's very interesting. Exactly. And, and, you know, I sort of tend to lean on that being an advocate for my customer is my approach. Uh, and, and that's one of the reasons that I no longer work for a vendor, uh, but I work for a reseller in the industry. Working at a vendor, everything's a nail because all you got is your hammer. Um, and I much prefer having those options. Um, and Connection Enterprises has been a, a real um, wonderful place to work at. Uh, they they allow me the flexibility to to bring my customers solutions that that they might not have considered or they might not have even heard of, uh, and and that advocacy that desire to give my customer their best solution as I see it uh, has been wonderful and and I really do credit the Tech Field Day videos that I used to watch before I was even a delegate. And those that I have been a part of since I've become a delegate as giving me some of the basis for the ecosystem, particularly in virtualization and in storage, but, but so much more as well. So kind of on the other end here, Matt, what are some of the best trends in IT right now? 
Oh, you know, in, in storage, certainly, you know, we're, we're getting more, better, faster, um, and, and better interconnects. I look at technologies like NVMe over fabric, um, and I, I see this is nothing but, but a great trend. And, and then again, I wonder if, um, you know, if somebody's going to buy one of those incredibly fast, incredibly uh, robust and scalable uh, architectures, is that exactly what their company requires? Um, I think it's a great trend. And, and I think, you know, uh, history has proven that our, our need for storage is only going to grow. Um, I think some of the other trends that really excite me are technologies like copy data protection and, and the various players in that arena that have, have made these, um, these disaster recovery environments so much more uh, automatable, if that's a word. Is that a word? Uh, I'll um, love it. Okay, thank you, Judge. Um, uh, you know, I, I look at the, uh, the whole category, which really is growing, but uh, not by massive uh, leaps and bounds, but more, more by um, this, the few players that are actually in it making technological leaps and bounds. We're not seeing... Uh, the big players come out with products that compete with the 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 cool hot startups like uh, like Rubrik and Cohesity, but you know HPE has a, a competitive product and uh, and Actifio is still in the game and 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 this category um, I remember the old days when I'd have to order a tape back from Iron Mountain just to recover a file that was last seen four months ago and sort of crapshooting my way through trying to find the right tape for it or the right series of tapes for it. Um, that can't happen in today's world. We're too dynamic. So those kinds of things need to be sort of an online infrastructure that understands that even if it's an archived piece of data, where it is, how quickly it can get it back, and and um, through a uh, sort of a simple no-brainer interface, I think that's really exciting for me. Um, I do see that uh, in virtualization that the the players are starting to collaborate so much better. I see VMware working with Microsoft and VMware working with AWS in ways they never had before. I see Citrix opening up their architectures to play with more players in the field. And, and, and that for me is very exciting. I'm doing, for example, a burstable VDI product uh, project right now for, for a customer. And that customer needs to be able to have a series of VMs for, for desktop on-prem uh, and available. But they also want to burst up to roughly four times that size. And it's, it's presented its own series of uh, sort of confusions and uh, and different approaches depending on whose players you're using. But what I'm seeing is is that as a an ecosystem, more and more interplay is is being fostered through the industry, and it's making my job both more convoluted, but also giving me more options to present to my customer. That's exciting. Yeah, and I think it's partly a result of a relatively competitive landscape. And it's one of the reasons I'm, I'm glad to see uh, 
I mean, while AWS, you know, dominates in the public cloud space, that there is some pressure from, you know, I mean, Microsoft isn't going anywhere. Google's not going anywhere. Oracle's now, you know, getting in, uh, playing, trying to play very serious in the public cloud. You know, uh, results may vary. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think a lot of that is is that there isn't, you know, there are the giants in the space, but they're not completely uh, ascendant over everybody else. Yeah, and, and I think you're right. I, I think, for example, years ago, we would look at somebody like uh, like Cisco or Red Hat as having this sort of wonderful ecosystem where they would partner with anybody. And um, I'm seeing that expanding more out into these what traditionally have been very proprietary uh, technologies to, to open themselves up. Uh, and APIs are certainly helping that um, that world, uh, to things like OpenStack and, and alternatives. Uh, it's, it's actually a very exciting time in the industry. Do you think some of that pairs though with, uh, you know, kind of the, everyone has an API that you can plug into. So that makes that part of it easier, but also that a lot of these players that would ordinarily maybe prefer a proprietary solution are now facing, you know, cheaper and cheaper commodity hardware, which is, you know, putting, I mean, you know, you want to talk about NVMe over fabric, you know, that, I, I mean, basically killed uh, what uh, Dell was trying to do with DSSD um, in terms of being able to deliver that kind of performance. Uh, I, I think that's also part of it too, is that you can't just build this giant monolithic proprietary thing because on a software and a hardware front, they're getting squeezed on both sides. They absolutely are. And DSSD is a perfect example of a, of a, technology that was built to resolve a, a, an incredibly high I.O. requirement by certain categories in the storage world, but it was built before it became commoditized. Mm -hmm. uh, and believe me, there's, there was nothing wrong with that architecture, but it was proprietary. Um, and, and yes, you look at startups like Accelero as a perfect example that leverage nothing but commodity architectures and a, a slightly modified um, version uh, of the driver uh, to, to really turn incredible I.O. out of stuff you can buy off the rack from Dell um, or HPE or whomever. And I, I think that's really exciting. Um, I just think that while DSSD was spectacular in, in its space for a short-lived period of time, um, it was also emerging at its, and I think I have to credit Howard, um, Howard Marks, just in case, uh, anybody out there doesn't know who I'm talking about with really illuminating, uh, on his podcast, exactly why DSSD failed and no disparaging to the, to the technology, but, but simply a matter of timing. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, you know, all this talk of, uh, Accelero, MVME, I can just, I, somewhere Ray Lucchese is smiling and getting very excited about it as well. Uh, he was the first one I ever heard that was was glowing about it. And that kind of kind of made oh, me realize there. how exciting it is. Yeah, I was there that day. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> watched Accelero come out of stealth mode. And uh, and Ray's jaw was, I've never seen it on the floor like that. It was, <laughs> it was truly amazing. Yeah, if uh, you ever want to hear uh, him wax enthusiastic about uh, NVMe, we have a on-premise IT uh, roundtable podcast all about the brave new world of NVMe. That uh, it it really uh, contextualizes why 
he's so excited. A lot of, and you know, Matt, you too are, are, are you know, super excited about this development. Uh, so shifting gears a little bit, uh, I kind of mm-hmm. want to get more into process a little bit. Um, you know, uh, it's it's very interesting to me uh, when I ask this question. I get a lot of varied responses, which have surprised me. Um, I thought maybe this would be a little more monolithic, but you know, Matt, how do you approach uh, organization at work? Um, what are kind of your some of your go to apps? I, I just want to like a little window into into how you approach work. Um, you know, it's it's interesting because uh, in in my company, my group, the the TSEs. Uh, sort of have a, a little bit more flexibility in how we approach things. Uh, for example, I'm a big Mac user and there's not very many of us in my company. Um, we were very reliant on active directory. So, uh, you know, I, I use my Mac more often than I use my windows machine, which tends to be more dedicated just to email and, and really proprietary systems that we have in the company. Um, but, you know, I, I love Evernote. Um, I have a client on my watch, a client on my phone, a client on all my machines. So all my note taking is done in Evernote. And a lot of people leverage OneNote instead. Uh, I just happen to find the, the fact that I'm not necessarily bound to the Microsoft ID with my Evernote stuff, um, beneficial to me. Um, so I take a lot of notes using that. I do a lot of my my planning uh, from a from a sort of a project management approach, uh, leveraging tools like Microsoft Project, um, it, it is one that uh, I find to be very helpful. But uh, you know, it, it's it's interesting you say that because you know I could go back to my old days as as an English major and just writing papers, and I found that the organization that I did for uh, you know, writing a, a paper on some obscure, some obscurish Shakespeare play like Coriolanus or Troilus and Cressida, uh, exactly the same sort of techniques that I use today when I write a blog post or, or when I approach a, a customer query. I rough out my ideas in an outline form and then I flesh them out. Um, and the writing itself for me, uh, having been an English major, is is really more, much more trivial than the the organization that I try to approach my subject with. Um, so once I have a plan in place, uh, some format of an outline, I can then transpose it into uh, a Microsoft Project Gantt chart or or flow chart or um, I, I like to use precedence diagramming, which is something I learned years ago, um, a, a sort of a military approach to precedence diagramming. Um, and then I can present my ideas to my customer. But, but you know, the, the main things to do are ask the appropriate questions and get the answers that the customer is looking to achieve. Um, and that can be, you know, what, uh, where will this fit into your environment in five years? Uh, so, so those are very good questions that can guide you when you start to build an architecture. And if you don't have those answers at hand, well, then you're sort of uh, throwing darts at a wall, and that wall could be 500 yards away. You're never going to hit your target. So 
you know, information is, is absolutely crucial. Uh, and, and the more real information I can be armed with, the better my answers are going to be. Um, a lot of it is about communication though, Rich. You know, if, if I don't communicate my plan to my customer, my approach to my customer, if they don't effectively um, answer my questions with, with real honest answers and I'm not adept enough to secure what those answers are, then again, you know, my, my target, my solution may be completely off base. I don't want that to be the case. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's kind of the purpose of a lot of these, you know, I mean, these tools can't solve that problem. That's kind of the uh, the beautiful human interaction that can be so frustrating uh -huh. at times. Sure. A anything uh, uh, particularly used for task management on a more, uh, you know, on a more day to day level? You know, I believe it or not, I still use Evernote for that. I have an ongoing list of tasks and I know it's it's not particularly glitzy in that space. Uh, there's all sorts of good tools, uh, but I find that the more things I have to look at in order to keep myself on track, uh, the harder it is. So I use my Outlook calendar, and Outlook is really dedicated to my customers' needs, uh, to those tasks and timelines I need to accomplish. But I keep my task list in an Evernote uh, list that I'm uh, – Damn, I use Evernote for everything. I've got lists of books I want to read, lists of blog post ideas I want to do, uh, lists of bands I want to hear or see. Um, it's it's somewhat methodical. Have, do, now, so I guess it's like a, a single pane of productivity glass uh, for you, Matt, if, if I'm going to use the, the parlance of our times. Yeah, I don't much care for that expression. <laughs> as, I, as I, I know we all don't. I do understand, though, what, what you mean by, by having everything in one place and not having to, to shift focus, uh, exactly. as it were. That's why for years I used uh, email to do kind of task management, which I know is terrible and everyone says not to do. And I've recently moved away from it. But uh, it is very tempting to just want to live in, in one interface for sure. Absolutely. All right. So uh, speaking of, uh, you know, lists of books you want to read, do you have any book recommendations out there for other IT pros other than the Phoenix Project caveat? <laughs> uh, because everyone would say that. Uh, and uh, what are you reading right now? So I'm really, uh, when I read for pleasure, I really don't choose to read nonfiction, although I did enjoy The Phoenix Project. Um, uh, so when I read for pleasure, having been a, a literature major, um, I tend towards authors that tell a great story but tell that great story really, really well. And language is very important to me. So uh, I have certain favorite authors. Uh, there's a dude named Scott Spencer, who uh, he writes actually not about technology at all, but he writes about um, obsession uh, and sort of the borderline between where, um, where your uh, – your adoration of a particular subject or person tends to cross the boundary into obsession and, um, and, and the empathy that you feel for the character that goes through this 
is uh, it's profound. His writing is, is truly spectacular. Um, unfortunately, he doesn't write nearly enough to keep me occupied. Uh, I tend also to read, you know, I'm on planes a lot. And if I'm not writing something, I'm reading something or sleeping. I t- actually get better sleep on a plane than I do in my home. Um, <clears throat> so I like a lot of the the mystery writers and the, um, <clears throat> I guess it's uh, detective fiction as well. Uh, Michael Connolly is great. Stephen Hunter is great. Um, and those books are more like the hamburger as opposed to the, the <laughs> steak. Yeah, the, the, a little bit more on the not guilty pleasure side, but yeah, the uh, the comfort food of fiction. I am reading something very interesting right now uh, called Happy Accidents. Um, and it, it, you know, its subtitle is Serendipity and Major Medical Breakthroughs in the 20th Century. And I find it very interesting to to understand where things like uh, a, a blood pressure medication was found to grow hair. And so what used to be a blood pressure medication is now uh, something that you can take and help your stem your hair loss or that these kinds of weird uh, serendipitous accidents. It's very cool. Excellent. Uh, so, uh, if to getting back uh, to something you kind of referenced before, you were, you had referenced that your first computer uh, had what two five and a quarter uh, floppy drives. What was that Only first one. computer? Uh, well, I was working for Tandy at the time. It was the uh, the Tandy one thousand, and I think it was uh, boy, I don't even remember what model it was, but I think I had sixty four k of RAM when I started out, and I beat it up to. 128k and a five and a quarter inch floppy disk which was uh double sided double density so it was 360k on that floppy that's that's all a growing boy needs right well if you ask uh, bill gates all we ever needed was 640k (laughs) so you were almost there uh not quite yeah (laughs) (laughs) and matt what are you doing when you're not working in it uh Another good question. Um, one of my favorite um, avocations is guitar. Uh, I play regularly. I don't necessarily play out regularly, but um, it is sort of a passion for me. Um, you know, I have what's known as uh, gas, if you've ever heard of that. Uh, it stands for guitar acquisition syndrome. <laughs> Uh, I think a lot of us uh, in the industry have certain sort of uh, weird obsessions about collecting things. So I have grown my collection of guitars. Um, but another thing that I like to do, and, and I don't know, I think I I love the instrument as much as I love playing it. And as a result of that and my the fact that I no longer really do a whole lot of hands-on engineering – I've started building guitars. So I've built a couple. Uh, I built, um, if this means anything to you, Rich, uh, I've built a Telecaster, which is a standard design from Fender. Of course, mine doesn't say Fender on it because it's not a Fender. It's mine. (laughs) Uh, And I I haven't created a logo yet. I should probably do that. And the other one I created is a Gibson design called the ES-335. These are both really classic instruments. Um, the next project I plan on taking on may be a bit more out of left field than a standard design, 
but uh, but we'll see. Do you have a white whale or the the dream guitar to acquire that uh, you know you you just have in a, a like bookmarked in a browser tab or have an eBay search saved for or something like that? <laughs> well, you know, I know that I have a budget, so that becomes a, a far more difficult conversation. If I were to come into you know hundreds of thousands of dollars, and it would be you know a no brainer type of acquisition. Um, yeah, there's a couple of guitars. Um, one of my all time favorite guitarists and those people who know me know this already is Jerry Garcia or was, I should say, uh, is for me. He no longer lives. Um, and Jerry played a very specific set of instruments, uh, towards the tail end of his life. Um, there are companies out there that manufacture, um, essentially, uh, copies of these, they're very, very customized. Uh, in fact, they play stereo, uh, which most guitars don't. Oh yeah. That's, oh, wow. Yeah. Um, he was, uh, uh, he was very enamored of these guitars and I would really love one of those. Well, if you're a good boy for Christmas, Matt, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what we can do. You know, I've been putting it on my Christmas list for decades now, and it just doesn't seem to happen. <laughs> and uh, probably the most important question uh, that we have here, how do you caffeine, Matt? With coffee. <laughs> are, are you a, a coffee snob or, or, or a connoisseur, I should say? I don't want to preface uh, your response there. Or is any? do you take all comers? I uh, Well, you know, we do have an, – and, and there was a, a funny – um, we did a, a tour around Boston when we were on a Tech Field Day event. And on this tour, they were touting the, uh, the wonderful availability of Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, well, we have Dunkin' Donuts here in the Chicago area as well. And if I were to be on a drive and, and looking for coffee, I would go there first. Uh, it is really very consistent, and, and that's important. However... Um, at home, I have a Keurig, which I know makes me sound like I don't respect the good cup of coffee. Um, it is certainly not the best, but it's very, very convenient. Um, I do balk a bit at the, um, at the waste that it produces, but it's a consistent sort of decent but not great cup of coffee. I have a French press. I use it on occasion. Uh, I, you know, I get, I've got good beans in my house. I use them on occasion, but there's really no comparing the, the convenience of my Keurig. You know, when it, when it comes to Dunkin', I'm always reminded of, cause I, that's kind of my go-to for fast, like fast coffee when I'm on the road. Um, and, uh, it reminds me of the uh, Napoleon quote that quantity has a quality all of its own. <laughs> well said. All right, and who would you like to see uh, sit down for the IT Origins interview, Matt? Do you have anyone in mind that you would like to hear? Um, you know, uh, I, I really enjoyed the uh, the last two that I that I perused. Uh, Enrico's was great, and Rebecca's is, uh, which I believe just got released today, was excellent. Um, there are some folks out there that are truly, truly interesting. I'd be curious about my old boss, certainly if you could get Chad on the board. Um, uh, I, I don't think he would mind all that much. Um, 
but you know the the, the group of delegates that we've got uh, as as attendees and some of these uh, conferences uh, are chock full of just some amazing personalities. Um, you know, a few that spring to mind. Uh, I think Greg Farrow would be really interesting. Um, he's got a long history and, and uh, deep. Uh, but, you know, Rich, the, it's just a very interesting program. And, and I really do enjoy hearing how people have come to what they do um, at, at this point. Right. And, and not all of them are as old as me. So they didn't start in the in the IBM XT era in PC DOS version two. Um, <laughs> But but a lot of them, uh, you know, they had far more rapid uh, growth in their careers and, and far more interesting paths than I have. Oh, uh, Matt, you you are not excluded from the interesting uh, IT origins uh, that we've talked about. This is this has been great, and so we'll get you out on this last question: best career advice you've ever received. I know it's an easy one. <laughs> You know, it can be summed up in, in, a, in a few short words, and, and that's look before you leap. Um, uh, I have joined companies in the past that have not been great choices, either because they were not well-established or didn't have the right um, environment uh, sort of culturally for me. Um, and I have um, left companies for positions that I never should have. Um, but I think that truly doing your research and finding out all you can about a company before you join them and about the specific role and culture within that environment, career path, et cetera, are, are absolutely mission critical. I could say also that the best things to happen to me in my career have all stemmed around social media. Um, the, the writing that I've done, the, uh, the presence on Twitter, uh, and I tend to to leverage Twitter more than any other uh, sort of social network platform uh, have been great benefits to me in my career. Uh, and again, I, you know, I mentioned him before, Chad Sackage gave me that advice when I started at EMC uh, over 10 years ago. And that was simply start a blog, you'll get used to it. Start tweeting, you'll get used to it. And that was great advice as well. Uh, but I think looking before you leap, I mean, for example, on my blog, it's it's a terrible title. It's called Virtually Tied to My Desktop. It's way too long. People can't remember it, and it's hard to type out. Um, I, can, uh, I can certainly say that I should have come up with a better name, but now that I'm branded on that, I kind of stick with it. Um, but had I looked before I leapt, then, then maybe I would have chosen a better title for it well matt where can uh you know we'll, we'll get you out on or not get you out on this where can people find more of your writing is that uh what is the the actual url for your blog and what's your twitter id and you know let, let everybody know where they can keep in contact with you sure thing um the the blog is virtually tied to my desktop.com all one word um and i i probably write about i don't know two or three posts a month there. And sometimes they're technology related. Sometimes they're philosophical and, and other times I actually just talk about music. Um, and on Twitter, pretty much the same subject matter. Uh, 
with a smattering of the Chicago Cubs. And uh, and that's at M-B-L-E-I-B on Twitter. All right, Matt, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time on this, and uh, we'll have this up soon. And uh, we'll put, also put this in the on-premise IT roundtable podcast feed as a little bonus episode. And thank you so much, Matt. I really appreciate it. 